There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. Today, we're broadcasting from Cleveland Clinic main campus here in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're here with Dr. Scott B. Dr. B is a psychologist at the Center for Behavioral Health, and we'll be talking about anxiety. And please remember, this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Nada. So let's go ahead and start uh, talking about anxiety. First of all, I want to just ask, what is anxiety? Just the definition. You know, anxiety is really a, a reaction in our body and brain that can be a feeling of worry, apprehension, uh, sometimes excitement in anticipation of an event or in the face of uncertainties. Okay, great. So it's not uncommon for us to feel anxious once in a while, um, but can you explain when it's perfectly reasonable and when it's not? I think it's perfectly reasonable when you're about to do a podcast to be a little bit anxious or, you know, perhaps in advance of a job interview, taking an exam where there's a performance component or evaluation of ourselves. Sometimes it's appropriate to feel anxious. In other instances, it's a reaction that's too strong to the condition. Our brain is very sensitive to perceptions of threat and you know, when anxiety gets in our way, starts to interfere with our lives, jobs, uh, obligations, or social relationships, then it then that becomes a problem. Sure, sure. And what are the symptoms of anxiety disorders? Well, let's see what's going on with me right now. Racing heart, sweaty palms, uh, sweat gland activity just in general can be kind of upset in our digestive system, sometimes racing thoughts, lots of thoughts about potential future dangers. Yeah. And uh, like I say, it's happening both physiologically in our brains, but also in our bodies. There are sensations and also worrisome thoughts that seem to be correlated with anxiety. Okay. Do, do emotions play into that at all? Anxiety is an emotion. Yeah. I think that you know people will uh, label. Uh, it has to do with our fear center, a spot in our brain called the amygdala. Mm -hmm. That gets activated. We can feel all the sensations of anxiety. Stress hormones get dumped into our... A body, and we feel all those things that we call fight or flight. Yes. The racing heart, muscles tensing. We breathe a little faster, getting more oxygen into our body to fuel those large muscles, and generally our gastrointestinal system shuts down or it lets go. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, um, what about like when our body normally reacts differently depending on the intensity of anxiety? Mm -hmm. um, what is the difference between acute anxiety versus chronic anxiety? Acute anxiety might be something simple like uh, having a car cut you off when okay. you're driving and you have to turn the wheel to avoid the collision and then perhaps you're right yourself and you'll feel that quick innervation uh, in your body. Your heart's racing a little bit, your arms are kind of rubbery or tingling and that would be an acute anxiety reaction. It's very appropriate in that circumstance because you need to act very quickly. Okay. That dissipates very quickly because we don't try to do anything about it. More chronic anxiety is that reaction going on in a much more sustained way or being activated periodically throughout the day. And certain people have brains that are predisposed to have that reaction much more commonly. And they can actually train themselves to be chronically anxious. So you'd say that chronic would be more of long-term versus acute would be short-term? Short-term, yes. Acute short-term. Happening you know, in this moment very quickly, dissipating quickly, 
chronic, you know, stimulated much more commonly, many times maybe throughout the day, day after day after day. And it kind of sounds like almost like an adrenaline rush. Like if you almost get into a car accident or if even you see a car accident, you're, you you know, you're feeling anxious, right? An adrenaline rush is part of anxiety, <laughs> right? Anxiety. Absolutely. Okay. And what are the different types of anxiety disorder? You really have all sorts of them. Uh, the, their labels are things like generalized anxiety, uh, social phobia, obsessive compulsive disorder is something that people hear a lot about. Yes panic attacks or panic disorder, uh, agoraphobia, which is a, an avoidance of lots of things. Other specific phobias are uh, considered anxiety disorders as well. There are some traumatic experiences that can produce anxiety, such as uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. That, that's in the range of anxiety disorders, although slightly distinct because it's trauma-based. Sure, sure. And what causes the, this disorder? You know, we think there is a dysfunction in brain circuits that regulate our emotional response to threat. Okay, okay so it's an overactivation in our brain of a response to threat. Right. That's a, important that our bodies respond to threat, but certain brains and bodies, they over-respond and then can consistently respond to a sense of threat. Okay, but are there like biological predispositions to anxiety? We think that that definitely happens. We see this trait transmitted, you know, amongst family members. Yeah. It can also be modeled to you uh, in families. If you have a worrisome parent who's always voicing concerns about threats in the world to their children, yes. they can be kind of trained or conditioned to be hypersensitive to threats as well. Okay, so how to cope? And let's talk about it without medications. How can we help ourselves and how to train our own brain and our kids' brains not to be anxious about situations? It's going to take practice. Yeah, what do we do? <laughs> and, and it's going to require that you allow yourself some discomfort. Okay. You know, what people really want to do is stop discomfort. And so when a person is anxious, their knee-jerk reflex is to try to do something to stop the anxiety. That doesn't work so well. Managing anxiety is kind of like managing quicksand. Okay. If you find yourself standing on quicksand, it's a good idea not to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. All right, that keeps you real safe. The same is true with anxiety. Anxiety is really harmless. And if you take steps to fix it, it generally gets worse because you're sending a signal to your brain that you're in a bad spot and your brain's going to keep responding by dumping more of those chemicals into your system associated with threat responses. Sure, sure. So learning how to do nothing, uh, how to not avoid how to be here now, to put our attention into the present moment, to get away from our thoughts a little bit. Okay. It, those are, that's kind of a general conception of what we can do. Now, the absolute practice of that, you know, there's some steps that we can go through to kind of produce these placid responses in the face of anxiety. But anxiety's harmless. It feels bad, but it's an illusion. It's, it's completely it's harmless. Brain. Yeah, it's happening in our brains. I mean, that's real. The chemistry in our body and brain, it's all real, mm -hmm. but there's no threat to that. Right, right. Okay, and, but people are paying attention to, I would say it this way. If you were trying to, let's say, run from the police, you'd be having an anxiety reaction and a panic attack, but you wouldn't be aware of it because your attention would be on the people pursuing you. Yes. When nobody's pursuing you, then the object becomes all the sensations in your body. Sure. And that becomes a threat. The sensations that I'm having, they get catastrophized. People want to avoid that and actually stimulates more of the chemistry in our brains and bodies, uh, exactly what we don't want. Right. And when you're anxious, you're almost thinking about the worst thing that can happen. And you're worrying about that, right? 
Right. And so anxiety is often just a response to thinking experience, not real experience. Uh, so often, human beings are disturbed by their relationship with their thoughts, not by the thing they're thinking about, but right. by the thoughts about the thing. Okay, well, it sounds like meditation would be a good thing for that, right? Yeah, I actually would term it mindfulness. That's mindfulness. kind of the modern take on meditation these days. Okay. Uh, yeah, mindfulness is easily defined as paying attention to the present moment on purpose, with attention, without judging. Okay. So just noticing, being here now, noticing. Now, there's a practice of that, uh, and the practice is sit comfortably. You don't have to sit in any particular way. Notice your breath. You don't have to breathe in any particular way. Now, just notice what sorts of things start to take you away from your breath. Could be a thought, a sound, a sensation. If you notice that you've gotten away from your breath, try to let that experience pass from your awareness. Ease yourself back onto your breath. That's the practice of mindfulness. But in a real way, we're mindful anytime we're engaged outside of self-awareness without judging. Not if you and I are engaged right now, we're being mindful, we don't even know that we're working or on a yes, podcast. Right. And so it's a simple thing we're doing all the time, but it takes practice in order to use, utilize it as one way of coping with the world and anxiety. Now, I have a question for you. Now, I've, I've practiced meditation. I think mm -hmm. it works very, very well. Sure. Um, but when I tell someone about it and mm -hmm. try to explain it, sure. I can never explain it the way you do. But the first thing is always like, well, there's so much going on in my head. There's so many thoughts. I don't know how to stop. Well, your brain is made to think. How, how, well, what would you tell our listeners? Well, what should they do? You said, talk, you know, kind of listen to your yeah, body, right. to your breathing, anything else? Yeah, I'd like to ask people, are your thoughts important? And people will reflexively say, yes, my thoughts, of course, are important. I say, but you have 50,000 thoughts, ideas, and images every day. Are they all important? And then people start to think about that. Sure. And when they estimate how many of their thoughts are important, they overestimate it. Right. We know half of our thoughts are spontaneous. They have nothing to do with what's really going on. But if one of those thoughts <gasps> creates this emotion, all of a sudden... We've created a thought that we tell ourselves is important and a sentiment that we want to try to fix, even though that thought may be completely unimportant and the sentiment needs no fix at all. It will go away as soon as we step away from the thought. So learning to regard our thoughts as a kind of unimportant yeah. is a really yeah. kind of great skill. And so even if my brain is active with lots of thoughts, they're not particularly important. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, I think we're kind of dreaming with our eyes wide open. We, you know, we have lots of mental activity when we sleep, and it produces lots of emotion. That's dreaming. Yeah. I think smart people, when they wake up from a dream, say, oh, you know, all that was unimportant. That was just a dream. That's why nobody really cares, yeah, you know, about our dreams, yes. even if we're trying to tell them. They don't show a lot of interest because they know it's unimportant. Sure. Now, with our eyes wide open, somehow all these spontaneous thoughts, this mental activity and emotion... It becomes really important when perhaps it's not important at all. Right. And the way I know that is nobody ever asks me what I'm thinking. Oh. Makes me believe that my thoughts are particularly <laughs> unimportant. Mm -hmm. And for the tech savvy uh, people out there, there mm -hmm. are mobile apps that oh, yeah. help with uh, you know, calming down your brain, correct? One of the national news uh, services last night was talking about one of these apps, Headspace, which a lot Headspace. of folks that I've worked with utilize. I yeah. think there are many of them, but Headspace has a little bit of notoriety now for mm -hmm. you know, teaching mindfulness skills and practical applications of mindfulness skills. So if somebody wants to be guided along that path, something like Headspace is really good. There are lots of great workbooks sure. that teach a lot of these skills too, this mindfulness skill, the acceptance thing, allowing things to be exactly as they are is 
kind of one of the attitudes of mindfulness. I don't have to be a fixer. Right. Just a noticer. Right. Just be aware. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, I mean, what you're saying makes so much sense to me. Now, I have two little kids. Okay? Sure. Four and seven. Okay, my heart goes out <laughs> to you, Nada. So I want to, you know, I, I've always looked into like books or something that I can teach them sure. what I'm learning, but I, don't, I, can't, I can't tell if they would understand in my level of understanding of awareness and being in the now, how to tell, first of all, if a kid has an anxiety problem versus being a kid and what am I to do? Sure. <laughs> kids will natu naturally have some moments where they're anxious. You, they, they go through the phase of separation anxiety where yeah. they'll cry if you're not around. Most kids will go through a phase of anxiety of what's underneath my bed, okay, yeah. as their imagination right. start to kick off a little bit. And right. really, we, we only get concerned where it's starting to produce interference for kids. Uh, if they're avoiding circumstances strongly, something we might call school refusal, if they refuse to go to school, if they you know, are afraid of the dark so much that they can't go to bed and, and, and be alone uh, by themselves, instances like that might be instances where you know, we really want to intervene yeah. uh, with kids. Yeah. If they become <clears throat> too worrisome and they're voicing worries all the time, once again, we might want to start to intervene with those children. Sure. Would you say something like yoga? Is, is it, are, my, are kids too young for yoga, or is that? I don't think kids are too young for yoga. I think they might not always know what is the value Purpose, of this. Yeah. How do I make this come alive in my life? But I'll tell you, you can teach kids like mindfulness skills uh, very early on in life. Goldie Hawn wrote a book called 10 Mindful Minutes in which she helps parents teach mindfulness skills to their children. So they grow up with a set of skills that argues against being anxious and helps them regulate their sure. emotions. And so it could be something like mindful eating. You know, the old mindfulness experiment is to hand somebody a raisin and actually, you know, put it in your mouth and actually before you bite into it, to feel the texture yeah. and just begin to notice the flavor and then bite into it. So we're really studying it. If I'm mindfully picking up my you know, cup of water, I can mindfully feel the texture of the styrofoam, feel the coolness, mm. and actually feel the water you know, going down my throat. Usually we're doing this mindlessly. Yes. And so it's just about tuning into what's going on here. Yeah. I would say, my thoughts are unimportant. What's going on here? Sure. And with children, you could say, what sorts of thoughts are you having? What, what is going on in your body? Well, those two things might be connected a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you can start to help them form relationships between thoughts and feeling states and also help them understand that some thoughts are just thoughts and have nothing to do with what's really going on so that they're kind of harmless and we can become more playful sure. with thoughts and feelings. Sure, just like dreams. Right? Just like dreams. And actually, uh, last summer, I started taking them hiking because okay. I started realizing that mm -hmm. they were very present when we were hiking because they were looking at each step versus thinking about anything else in the world. That's right. So Those that things was, that pull us outside yes. of self-awareness like hiking, that's it. Yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, when we're engaged, that's when tension goes down. Sure. And we don't do enough of that. I agree. We fall back into self-awareness. Uh, I, I do a talk called When I'm in My Head, I'm in a Bad Neighborhood. And... Uh, it, it's, I think, legit. Uh, yeah. There's a, a bunch of circuits in our brain we call the default mode network. It's where our thoughts go when nothing else is going on or pulling our attention outside. It's not a particularly happy place. It's often where we're going to upset ourselves, right. dredge up past experiences that were unpleasant, anticipate future events, or generally upset ourselves. Sure, sure. So it's not just about not thinking, about uh, actually choosing the thoughts that 
come to your brain and sticking with the positive ones to keep them Actually, kinda... we can't control thoughts. Can't. It's about relating to thoughts differently. Okay. I could say, hey, Nada, don't think about a blue baseball for the next 60 Stop seconds. And it's, yeah, it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna be a pretty tough task. Yeah. But if we say, hey, you know, why don't we just notice that I had a thought about blue baseballs and that it comes and goes in and out of my awareness, like all, you know, external experience, it comes and goes in and out of our awareness, nothing to be done about it. So we could relate to thoughts just by noticing rather than by having to fix. And sure. that to me is the secret for managing anxiety, to be one that notices doesn't fix, that allows discomfort rather than tries to avoid it, sure. and that we're going to move toward things, even things that are slightly uncomfortable based on our values and our commitments. Uh, and we do know this, by the way, if you're moving towards something that makes you anxious, your anxiety will actually go down mm -hmm. and your confidence will go up with practice. Mm -hmm. If you avoid, it works just the opposite. Anxiety goes up, and confidence goes down. You can imagine a dentist. If you haven't gone for six months, you might be a little anxious. Yeah. It might be a little hard to go. If it's been six years, it's going to be really, really sure. hard to go into that circumstance. Sure. So we try and get rid of avoidance behaviors also. Great. This is excellent. Now, with um, tragic events happening as often, often as they do or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in the media as much as they are, is there any way to talk to kids um, about tragic events but at the same time, eliminating or lowering their anxiety levels? It's hard. We know that <clears throat> the young generations are a particularly anxious generation. Yes. The generation they call Generation Z mm -hmm. experiences much more anxiety than preceding generations. Uh, depends on the age of the child, Nada. If a child's really young, I think you really want to offer them assurances of safety. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll, they'll believe that, and they'll you know, appreciate that you as a parent are protecting them. Mm -hmm. With older kids that can appreciate, you know, some abstractions or abstract thinking, you want to be honest with them. You say, hey, you know, that does happen in the world. But you also want to talk about statistical models that say, in general, the world is pretty safe. There are things that, you know, might be challenging, but here are steps that adults take to protect you. Here's what we're doing to protect you. What can you do? Sure. You know, to protect yourself so that they get a more realistic but balanced view. I think you know, the way our media is these days, we hear about all these events. And so we overestimate their prevalence. And so we walk around feeling really, really threatened. And, you know, this generation grew up kind of at, you know, they were six years old or younger when 9-11 happened. And our world really changed with respect to anxiety. Sure. We experience threat at a different level these days. Right, right. right. Okay, great. And then um, let's talk about treatments. Sure. Um, if mindfulness doesn't work, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, going into treatments, what kind of medications, what kind of yeah. different things that we can do? You know, if you're really struggling, that is, you're having really a lot of trouble functioning in the face of anxiety, some really useful medicines are antidepressant medicines, mm -hmm. uh, something called SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's a fancy name for an antidepressant, okay. but it has really nice protective anti-anxiety effects. It really limits the emotional response of the brain to right. common provocations or thoughts that might produce anxiety. So it produces nice protection. In some rare cases, you might need something that's a little more quick acting, doesn't stay in your system as long, benzodiazepines or that class of drug. They're a little bit habit forming. So we don't like to keep people on those medications too very long, mm -hmm. generally not more than four months. Um, it can provide some quick relief, but you want to teach people coping skills. And, you know, if a medicine is coping for you, then you, you're not really going to learn the skill. 
Right. It can also happen with like drugs and alcohol. People might try to self-medicate. Uh, something like social anxiety. I think taverns and pubs and bars are designed for those who are socially anxious. We give you alcohol, we turn the lights down so you feel more anonymous. The alcohol is disinhibiting, but you're not really learning anything. You're allowing some chemical agent to do the work. So you're not learning. So even if you are using medications for anxiety, it's a real great idea to be actively learning coping skills like mindfulness, acceptance-based sorts of skills along the way. So you're really changing your brain you know, along with the medicines. And sometimes the anxiety can be overwhelming. And right. so I say you can learn calculus in a room that's 120 degrees, but it gets easier if you turn it down to 70 degrees. Sure. So the medications turn the heat down for yeah. us so that we can learn some new skills. Okay. So would you say um, therapists would work first or t to try a therapist first for coping mechanisms versus going straight to medication? It it kind of depends how you're built. I think people, yeah. there are many paths up the mountain. People will try different things. Uh, some people have a bias. Some people say, I'm absolutely not taking medicine. Some people yeah. say, I'm absolutely not talking to a therapist. Right. And the best treatments tend to be combined treatments, mm -hmm. you know, particularly if it's really interfering, if it's getting diagnosed as an anxiety disorder, combinations of medicines like antidepressants and cognitive behavioral therapies or an offshoot of cognitive behavioral therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy those are shown to work awfully nicely, often in concert. And if you get really good at the coping skills, then oftentimes you can fade the medicines. Okay, great. And then with the coping skills and medication, is this also appropriate for kids? You know, that's an area that's not quite in my uh, expertise. I think with kids, you really want to try to teach a coping skill first. Yes. In unless there is just tremendous uh, impairment and interference from anxiety, you'd want to help a kid you know, train their brain yeah. to respond differently uh, to what it's doing. Look, if we're going to learn a musical instrument, it's great to learn it when you're really young. Right. All right, if we try and do it at my age, I won't be so good at it, or I'll only go so far. Sure. So when we're dealing with young brains, they're, they're much more able to grasp these Sponges, ideas and yeah. make them useful and practice them across their lifetime. Right, right, okay. And what do you say to people who are scared to ask for help? Stomp through the fear. Uh, you know, you have to do it anyway. I'd say feel the discomfort, but do it anyway. Sure. And, and that's actually one of the tools for managing anxiety. Go ahead and feel uncomfortable, but do it anyway. Yeah. You know, I think one nice little analogy is like skydiving. Skydiving is like a great idea two weeks before you do it. You sign up with all your friends and you decide you're going to jump out of a plane. And this is what happens with human beings. We call this an approach avoidance conflict. Uh, we want to approach this because it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Over the next couple of weeks, we start to have more thoughts about skydiving. And it starts to produce these little anxiety reactions. Well, on the day of the event, they take you out to the skydiving school and they keep you really engaged outside yes. awareness like a hike with your kids you're packing up your chute and you're learning how to jump off picnic tables to simulate landing I understand it gets real quiet as the plane takes off and everybody's thinking yes, about am I really going to do this well when do people have better ideas than jumping out of the plane as soon as the door opens wow. and then they're you know faced with what they said they wanted to do and they freeze yeah <gasps> okay anxiety right so the pilot tells you something cockamamie, like you have to jump out of the plane. We can't land with your weight in the plane. It forces people to, you know, stomp through that discomfort. And as soon as you're out the door, your anxiety starts to plummet along with you. Yes. Uh, but it's taking that step. You know, it's that moment where, you know, we feel that terror that we don't want to move forward. Move forward anyway. Ask for help. Yeah. Uh, as soon as people make that step, some of the tension goes down. 
And it's funny, when you're hanging out with a psychologist, I'll sometimes ask people, are you feeling anxious right now? Well, of course not. I said, does it feel like you're hanging out with a psychologist? It doesn't. We're just engaged in a conversation like you and I are. Yeah. Not a, so it's a little bit uh, less painful than it appears on the outside. Yeah. So how do uh, neurotransmitters in our brain relate to anxiety? Well, neurotransmitters, a pretty fancy name for little chemicals in our brain that are messengers that get transmitted through the circuits in our brain. And some of those are related to anxiety. So neurotransmitters that people might have heard of, serotonin, mm -hmm. dopamine, norepinephrine, something called GABA, are all little messengers in our brain that can be associated with anxiety and the circuitry of anxiety, some of which is coming from this fear center in our brain, the amygdala, but when we're using medicines or when we're trying to train our brain differently to respond differently to anxiety, those are the chemicals that we're trying to influence. Medicines kind of work from the bottom up. They're trying to change those little chemical events in order to change our experience of anxiety. When we're teaching mindfulness, acceptance-based skills, allowing things to be the way they are, my thoughts are unimportant, then we're trying to change something more generally about the circuitry in our brain to influence those little chemicals. So we can change our own neurotransmitters by coping skills and mindfulness. Like any learning, yes, it changes our brain. And we can learn and change our brain. It takes practice, and sure. it takes dedication and commitment across time. But absolutely, we think we can be brain engineers and help ourselves. So sometimes I feel like my stress response, because mm -hmm. I could be impatient, mm -hmm. that, that teaches my kids to react to my reaction <laughs> to stress. Sure. Um, what can I do? It's really important to take some steps to manage our own expressions of tension and anxiety. This is not easy because sometimes it comes out of us reflexively. But rather than voicing the stressor ourselves, we might notice something like, oh, we're running late. I guess we'll get there when we do. Uh, to normalize it and normalize that the consequence for such things, why not ideal, is, is not particularly hazardous either. I can remember walking home, carrying my four-year-old daughter home <clears throat> on an electrical storm under tall forestation, huddled under a lightning rod that I was holding in my hand and telling her, hey, you know, everything is all right. Now, I didn't quite believe that, but I didn't want to yeah. convey that sense of threat to her. And so it takes practice in our role as parents to kind of stifle the verbalization and try to normalize how we get through all things in life. Sometimes training ourselves out of a reflex takes practice. So yes. sometimes you could uh, run a little four-step thing where maybe I image a provoking scenario. Oh my gosh, we're running late to an important thing. We can imagine that haywire reaction. The second step, imagine ourselves going haywire and verbalizing all our fears. We could then stop that, replace it with an, an image of how we'd like to see ourselves sure. responding with a calmer body, calmer brain, calmer words, normalizing what's going on. And then the last step, spend a moment talking to yourself about how you'd come up with that kind of rational response in an upsetting circumstance. Being late's not great. It happens all the time. We get through it in every instance. Everything's going to you know, be okay. Those little steps can help us. If we rehearse that for 60 seconds once a day, next time we're in that spot, we might be able to reach for that new response rather than giving into the reflex. Without the practice, the reflex is probably going to be dominant. So practicing and training will get us there. That's it. It'll yeah, be rehearsals. Yeah, we can actually rehearse new emotional reactions in that way. We don't talk about that very much. And if you ask people, do you have perfect emotional responses so that in any provoking 
scenario, you just respond with wonderful dignity and aplomb. Nobody right. will agree to that. Right, so right, right. we all can stand to practice. Now, I actually watched something. Tell me if that's true, but I just watched something talking about if you if you imagine that you are, uh, let's say, riding a roller coaster, mm -hmm. that your brain neurons are, would go off the same way that it would if you are actually riding a roller coaster. So you can think your thoughts into almost neurons moving. Well, people can frighten themselves about riding roller coasters <laughs> before they ever get on one, that's for sure. Indeed, we can have anxiety yeah. responses to mental representations. That's really what anxiety is about. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I say, if I'm really faced with a snake, you know, I might feel an anxiety reaction. If somebody says, hey, do you want to go spend time with snakes? I might immediately feel that response in reaction to my imagery about snakes. So yes, it can happen that way. And of course, they're developing all these new technologies like virtual reality technologies. If you're a fearful flyer, you can put on a virtual reality headset and have the image of actually being on a plane sure. or riding a roller coaster or, or in any circumstance that you can imagine that people might respond with anxiety in order to expose them. Because exposure actually is one of the things that really works. Yes. I'll say this, with yes. like obsessive compulsive disorder, mm -hmm. if you really don't like contamination and we wanna help you over that a little bit, we might say, and let's say your hand wash or you yes. wash your hands too many times a day, way too long, we might say, here's a concoction of dirt and hair of unknown origin. We're gonna put that on your lap for the next hour and then we're gonna prevent you from touching water for the next 24 hours. That produces a real dilemma for that person. Their brain will go crazy for a little while, but eventually, if they stay in that condition, the brain will correct itself. And when it does, it learns an emotional lesson that you can't learn any other way. This is not dangerous to me. And learn to cope. That's it. And so that. exposure, exposure, by the way, is a very common treatment for anxiety. So yeah. if we're phobic, we expose. If you're avoidant because of OCD, we expose. If you're socially avoidant with social phobia, we use exposure to social conditions. Uh, so exposure is often a very key component mm -hmm. to, to the treatment of anxiety. Again, shaking up the brain, making it uncomfortable, preventing escape so that the brain corrects itself through no other intervention, and then you right. figure out the puzzle. I've yeah. never had to avoid this. Yeah. And speaking of that, I've heard that um, they, uh, they now use virtual reality for PTSD patients to go through the same traumatic experiences so they can kind of, you know, cope with that kind of uh, That's emotion. Right. It, it sounds, you know, pretty hazardous, right? Yeah. But if you think about it, like Marine, marine Boot Camp, yeah. all right, Marines are exposed to unrelenting discomforts for 13 solid weeks. They say uh, they tear you down to build you up. They actually never build you up. Uh, they just keep tearing at you so that the thing that really shook you up on the first day doesn't move uh -huh. your brain at all. So that's the training that we're trying to do with some difficult anxiety conditions, sure. and it does work. But you do have to have a willingness to be uncomfortable. Sure. So for kids, mm -hmm. um, how much exposure is too much exposure when it comes to stress? You know, I think we do want to expose our kids to situations that occur in real life, mm -hmm. see if they can develop some problem solving. The older they get, the more we should allow them to figure out a circumstance. Mm -hmm. If it's with a teacher, if it's with a fellow student, I think too often we jump in and intervene on behalf of our kids and see exposure builds immunity, right? Just like with germs. If yes. you protect your kid from germs and the first day they go to school, they're bound to get sick because they've built no immunity. Likewise, we need to let kids kind of figure out some of life's dilemmas. We can talk about those dilemmas. We can say, what do you think you might do about that? Right. Rather than let me go fix that for you. 
if we always are fixing, the kid never develops coping skills, and it's actually one of the challenges that parents are facing, walking that tightrope. Do I fix it for them because it makes me uncomfortable to see my child uncomfortable, or do I allow them to develop some immunity resilience. for what... Yeah, and resilience, exactly, for what life is really like. No one can make those judgments for you, but we do think that we're handicapping our children by not allowing enough exposure to what's real about life. And again, you can develop a dialogue. What's going on in your thoughts? What sorts of sentiments or sensations are you having? That might be kind of safe. What sorts of you know, thoughts do you have about how you might solve that? What steps could you take on your own behalf? Those would be important conversations to have. The reactions in our body are harmless. Yeah. Okay, having a child do uncomfortable things uh, and, and not sparing. Yeah. If they didn't do their homework, you know, maybe they have to go face the teacher yeah. with that reality right. rather than us calling the teacher and trying to run interference and asking for forgiveness. Yeah. So those would be little examples of, of how we might allow exposure. Well, you know, we are actually out of time. This is all we have for today. But is there mm. anything else that you wanted to add on or no, to I'd our say audience? No, I'd say, truly, one of the keys to managing anxiety is you have to have a willingness to be uncomfortable. We're in a comfort-ridden culture where we sell comfort and we think that this is the way to live. You know, the most important moments in our lives and our biggest accomplishments come when we accept discomfort and do it anyway. Yes. And that's how we overcome anxiety. Yes. Well. Thank you so much, Dr. B, for joining Super, us. It's really been an absolute pleasure. Fun for it's me. A great, great talk. Thanks, Nada. Thank you. And for more information or to make an appointment with a behavioral health specialist, call 216-636-5860 or visit clevelandclinic.org slash behavioral health. And thanks again to our listeners and viewers for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And to listen to more of our Health Essentials podcast from our Cleveland Clinic experts, make sure you go to clevelandclinic.org slash H-E podcast or you can subscribe on iTunes. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again next time. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.